Our primary reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The word of the Lord. I... Uh officiate a number of weddings, uh, and when I do this, I often do premarital counseling uh, for the couple, and a lot of these couples are not followers of Jesus, but I still uh, like to, to say, oh, hey, you, wanna, you need to know where I'm coming from. I want to give you like a theology uh, of marriage, and, and so I, I usually do this interactive Bible study in Genesis 2 and 3, and Genesis 2 always goes really well. Couples really like that. The guys and girls are like, oh, this is a new kind of take. I really dig it. Um, but y'all, man, whew. when you get to Genesis 3, uh, there is no faster way to trigger a feminist than to read the curses in Genesis 3. Um, but, you know, I still like to have a little bit of fun, uh, so I usually make the guy read the curses and he like pauses, like he's like, am I going to get in trouble if I read this? Um, and then I watch the girl just to see her face as he like sheepishly kind of like goes through it and, and, and see what happens. And I'm like, this is going to be really helpful for like conflict resolution counseling later in our, in our sessions. Now, of course, before she fires me as the officiant, I do uh, unpack the context for them as we are going to today. Uh, you see, this is one of the most poorly interpreted passages in the entire Bible, and because it is so misinterpreted, not only does it do great harm to women, but by getting it wrong, we actually miss some of the brilliant insights about the human condition, and we miss out on the good news that God wants us to see in it. So just to catch you up, if you are new to this series today, this is where we are at. The serpent, who represents ancient Near East cult deities and represents the forces against God, has been successful in deceiving humanity. Man and woman now have collectively rejected trusting in God by eating of a death root on a forbidden tree, which will doom them to die. God has found this out, but nobody has taken any responsibility. Everyone blames something or someone else. And now we get to the section of what is commonly known as the curses. 
Now, before we get to them, though, there's a really important context for us to note. This should not be read as God creating curses, like God is punishing us from eating from the tree. Last week, we discovered that God was not angry about humanity eating from the tree. God was concerned and alarmed. So what's happening with this curse word? Well, the Hebrew word for curse is a flexible word that can also simply mean prediction. In other words, when we read these, God is not saying, I'm personally going to do these to you as a punishment from me, but rather, these are naturally going to happen to you as a consequence of your sin. And in some ways, because this writing now switches from a prose style to a poetic structure, These can even be read as laments by God. As God makes these pronouncements, God as the good parent is not yelling at us, but mourning over us. Let's begin in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbirth exceedingly great. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, there's two things here that typically we get wrong about this. One is understandable, and the other one is, well, it requires a deliberate misreading. So allow me to handle the problematic lines first, because even though they are the least important to this theme, they get the most focus. When this pronouncement reads, yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you, this gets weaponized by men as a mandate for exerting power and control over women. They say, look, God says it right here in the Bible. You're supposed to desire me and I'm supposed to rule over you. Look, this is biblical. This is God's gender roles right here for us. Now, I want to be sensitive and gracious to how I address this idea from a more traditionalist point of view, so I will just respectfully say that this interpretation is incredibly stupid. (laughs) That's being gracious. People who defend sexism and misogyny and patriarchy and want to go to this verse need to find better material because this verse literally says the opposite of what they think it says. Why? Because in Genesis 2, we are already given the gender roles of man and woman, and that role is, wait for it, equality. The woman is a man's ezer. A word that means ally, partner, protector. And men and women are described like being two sides of an arch that lean on each other for support. That's God's design for humanity. And the only one who rules, who is capable of wisely ruling, is not man, but God alone. And so Genesis 3, then, isn't about God's design for humanity. But what happens when we reject God's design? What happens when instead of choosing to trust God, we reach for our own tools of power and control and try to be our own gods? 
That is the fall of humanity. And so what is on the other side of the fall? What is one of the first consequences of sin? Sexism, misogyny, patriarchy, these themselves are sinful. So yes, it is incredibly stupid to attempt to use this verse out of context to defend the very thing it condemns in context. But okay, you might be like, what about the childbirth line? Is the Bible saying that women should experience pain in childbirth? Because there are some people out there usually people who also think patriarchy is God's will, that don't even believe in pain medication for childbirth because of this verse. Now, that application is terrifying, but it does come from an understandable misinterpretation in this verse, that this passage seems to indicate that as a consequence of sin, women will experience pain giving birth. And after all, Guys, be grateful. Human women uniquely experience more pain giving birth than any other animal species on earth. So I'm told that this could feel like a curse. So it's not surprising then that this is where our interpretations automatically go. However, the Hebrew word here for childbirth is less about the process of birthing a child and more about the entire process of conceiving and raising a child. And remember, if Genesis is talking about the human condition, this makes way more sense. In the ancient world, large families were needed for a parent's prosperity. And large families were needed for a nation's survival. Smaller tribes get wiped out by bigger tribes, and you don't want to be part of the smaller tribe. On top of that, direct descendants were almost the only way that resources got passed down and they were able to be accrued. Because of these realities, a woman's value was almost entirely contingent on her ability to conceive children. This is why when you read about women being barren in the Bible, that is, unable to conceive, it seems like it comes with this terrible shame to it, and likewise, to be able to conceive comes with this great honor. Because a woman's identity was tied to reproduction, to not have children meant a loss of meaningful identity. So, when verse 16 says that childbearing is painful... It is naming the profoundly painful reality that women have faced since the beginning of time and still face today. That to want kids and not be able to have kids is painful. That to not want kids and have to have kids is painful. That because of the patriarchy, there will be a continual struggle to control women's reproductive freedom. And I know some of you hear that, and you go straight to abortion. But it's much bigger than that. I'm talking about tubal ligation, and I'm talking about IVF. I'm talking about access to safe contraceptives, and I'm talking about access to prenatal health. Y'all, I get so frustrated when I see politicians talk about us being a, a Christian nation. I don't know what that means. 
But if we're going to be a Christian nation, we at least start with not having the worst maternal death rate in the developed world. Y'all, even though this was written 3,000 years ago, can you tell me that this doesn't accurately describe the struggle of women today? And yet, this is what God has never wanted. This is all on the downstream of the fall. And yet men don't escape the pain of sin either. Look at verse 17. And to the man he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. You are dust and to dust you shall return. Because of sin, women will tend to suffer in ways common to women. But men will suffer in ways common to men. In fact, the Hebrew word here for man's toil is the same word that is used for a woman's pangs. Both can be rendered sorrow. There is tragic parity in our pain. Men and women will experience equal sorrow, equal suffering. And for most of human history, this will be in different contexts. And even today where there is more gender fluidity in terms of roles and opportunities. In some ways, this just gives men and women more opportunities to experience more kinds of sorrow. And so how has this sorrow primarily affected men? Well, just as in the ancient world, as a woman's value was almost entirely contingent on her ability to produce children, a man's value was almost entirely contingent on their ability to produce wealth and resources. If you could not provide for your family, you were publicly shamed. If you fell into too much debt, you could be enslaved. This is why Jesus has multiple parables about men who either waste money or are forgiven of their debts. A man's finances was either tied to honor or shame. And so if we can say that a woman's identity was tied to biological reproduction, a man's identity was tied to economic productivity. And therefore, not to be successful meant a loss of meaningful identity for men as well. And again, is this not a problem that we face today, if not even more so? Political scientists look at the political instability of a country. They predict it by measuring the unemployment rate of young men. When there's an economic recession, suicide rates jump up among men. 92% of workplace fatalities are suffered by men. God has never wished this for us either. This too is the downstream of the fall. And because of this, God takes aim at the serpent, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, 
Because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, it's easy to get stuck on this story if we think that this is a literal serpent, like, did it have legs, and then, like, God took them off. Uh, Some ancient art actually depicts serpents with wings, and if that is the case, I am glad we do not have flying snakes anymore. And some people just interpret this story as a just-so mythology of why some people hate snakes so much. But remember, this serpent is not literal. After all, it was just talking. The serpent is a symbol of the forces in opposition to God and the humans made in the image of God. But look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So what happens here? God pronounces a conflict between those forces that are in opposition to God and with humanity itself. But through the woman's unique sorrow, through childbearing, will be born an offspring that will strike the serpent's head even as it strikes our heel. Now, at first look, this seems like this is going to be a protracted conflict with neither side really winning. And in fact, Jewish theologians who identified the serpent as Satan said that this was our eternal struggle. They would say, to obey Torah, that is God's law, to obey Torah is to defeat the serpent. And to fail to obey Torah is to be defeated by the serpent. But the first Christians read this differently, in part because the offspring of the woman here is not plural, but a singular child that will strike the head of the serpent. The first Christians saw this as a proto-gospel, a first gospel that unbeknownst to the original storytellers was secretly and subtly foreshadowing what God would one day do in Jesus that Satan would only be able to metaphorically strike God in the heel by killing Jesus on a cross. But through the resurrection, Jesus overcoming sin and death, this would metaphorically crush Satan under the heel of Christ. So in other words, when the first Christians read Genesis 3.15, where most religious people saw humanity fated to be trapped in this kind of religious stalemate with evil, the followers of Jesus saw the promise of breakthrough over evil. But this raises another question. Why would we even think that God is willing to rescue us from evil? After all, Genesis 3 records the first mutiny by humans against God and all the disastrous consequences that follow. What would give anyone hope from a pronouncement that ends from dust you came and to dust you shall return and think that God still has a good plan for humanity? Because remember, what was God's warning if we ate from the forbidden tree? That to eat of it would kill us. 
not just harm us, kill us. But what doesn't happen to the man and woman? They don't die. God's mercy spares us the worst consequences of our sin. That would have been the unredeemable consequences of our sin. Because if man and woman had instantly died, there would have been no more humanity in the garden. But not only that, even though this section is commonly referred to as the curses, look at what is specifically cursed. The serpent is cursed, which represents those forces of opposition to God. And the earth is cursed, which represents the economies that we live in that we desperately struggle to survive on. So the the serpent is cursed, and the earth is cursed, but one party escapes the curses. Humans. Somehow, even though we are the undeniable perpetrators, we escape experiencing a direct curse. Why? In our first reading today, the Apostle Paul explains in his letter to the church in Galatia this. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. I believe that humans were spared from the self-induced curse, a self-induced death, because as soon as we could make the choice to poison ourselves, God had a plan to remedy us, a remedy that would work for all time, future and past, to save us. That the effects of the cross not only go forward to benefit those who live after Jesus, but that they work themselves back to benefit those who lived before Jesus. This is good news. Because humanity chose to eat from a tree with a curse. God chose to come as the man Jesus and absorb A curse on a tree. Jesus endured the human curse to spare humanity so that we might not die and that one day we could reverse every curse, the serpent and the earth. Those forces in endless opposition to God and those crushing economies we labor endlessly under Every curse reversed. Christ became a curse so that you and all of creation could be blessed. May you receive that blessing. And may you partner with Christ to reverse every curse for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, I took a look. Y'all got a lot of questions today. <laughs> yeah.
this trend of very thoughtful questions is they are. continuing they, this they morning. They are really thoughtful. Really excellent. Get some rest before tomorrow. You're going right. to need it. All right. Um, what, we had a lot of questions kind of uh, um, along this line. So in verse 16, the scripture version we have says to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. It seems different than what we talked about today. So just some different translations. Um, can you address that? Yeah. So th- this is one of the reasons why it's, it's a difficult passage or it gets misused because we're not even entirely sure how to phrase that. There's some questions about like issues of abuse of authority. There's, is it desire? Um, the, the way that we can basically understand it in the clearest way is that we're, it's recognizing that there is going to be um, a conflict. There's going to be a lack of harmony between man and woman because we know that they have harmony, they have parity, they have equality, and then there's the dysfunctional break. And so that's the, what we can know for sure. Some translations render desire for husband, contrary for a husband. I actually use today the most, really the most conservative translation so that if you are having these conversations with someone else, you can go to their Bible and be like, wait, no, we talked about this translation. Um, so that's the one that says your desire will be for your husband. So, um, You said that the effects of the cross worked themselves backwards to before the time of Christ as well. What happened to those that died before Christ? Where, where were they while waiting for Jesus? Yeah, so this is, this is something that the church kind of wrestled with early on because they're like, okay, well, Jesus showed up. What happened to my, my, my Jewish grandma who died before Jesus showed up, right? What, what's the deal with her? And so the church worked out a great theology of saying that um, – Anyone who, who was faithful to God as they understood God, as God was expressed to them, we trust that they are with Christ. And so that Christ's saving work goes all the way back to the very beginning. There's some great um, Orthodox iconography, Eastern Orthodox uh, work that shows these, all these really great pictures of how uh, Jesus is rescuing Adam and Eve, bringing them out of the grave. And, and, and Paul says this as well, like Abraham is with God. And so there's lots of folks that uh, never knew about Jesus, but we are trusting or absolutely reconciled and with God uh, because the cross had the power not only to extend over for over space but time as well which I just think is amazing all right let's get a little nerdy I know revelation talks a lot about the serpent or the dragon is there a parallel here with Genesis 3.15? Okay, yeah. So uh, 3.15 is the one that says he will, um, he'll strike at your heel and, you'll, and he'll crush your head. Um, so if you go over to Revelation 12, there's actually a story about Mary and Jesus. So Mary is the one. She's the new Eve. Uh, we haven't talked about that yet, but it's a really cool idea. Mary's the new Eve. In Revelation 12, she gives birth to a male child and then... The serpent, the dragon, they say, it's like you know, that old serpent, tries to kill Jesus. And this is the story of Jesus uh, being tracked down by Herod, and Mary saves him by taking him to Egypt. And Revelation records this whole story cryptically. And then it says that Satan can't stop him um, and can't find him because Mary protects him. And then he goes away really mad, and he, now he goes after other Christians, followers of Jesus. But then Jesus comes in by chapter, I think, 19. Jesus crushes the forces that are in opposition to God and ultimately defeats the serpent himself self in verse 20. And so, yeah, Revelation is bookending Genesis as well about the story about how the serpent meets his ultimate end. More serpents and dragons. Fun. All right. There are a lot of more really, really good questions. If you're thinking about this later or if you're watching online and you have some more questions, please send them in and Colin will address them tomorrow on Facebook and Instagram Live. Great. Thank you, Lane.